Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, mitigate ransomware, and more. And also by Liquidware, who just launched Stratosphere UX version 6.1.4 that delivers new enhancements for user experience monitoring, particularly in support of AWS and Azure platforms. I say it all the time, but without sponsors, the podcast would not be possible each week. So you have them to thank. And now for some news. And at the top of the show, a quick warning to those with semantic endpoint protection in their environment. There is a Reddit post about a recent definition update that has started to crash servers with a page fault in non-paged area on ex64.sys errors in the event logs. Systems with definitions 13.11.2019-R20 appear to be those that are crashing. Some reports state the issues with Server 2016 specifically, although obviously the definition update was just yesterday. Information is still coming out, and it's unclear if it's just on Server 2016 that the problem is. But so far, all references I've read about are related to Server at least. So there could be some credence to that. The quickest fix appears to be to just reinstall semantic endpoint protection if you're able to, if the system doesn't keep crashing out before you can. And you also should make sure that definitions version R22 are available on your update points before doing so. Alternatively, for a quick workaround, you can go into safe mode without network applied and just disable semantic. Unfortunately, that's a pretty bad ending or even middle of the week for a lot of those IT warriors out there because Semantic is pretty widely deployed in enterprise. Fortune.com reported that HP received an acquisition offer from Xerox worth over $30 billion. The report details the well-known state of both Xerox and HP with the dwindling sales and print cartridges due to the third-party companies out there who are selling cheaper alternatives. Interestingly, HP's hardware sales have been performing very well over the last three years. Obviously, HP split into two divisions, the hardware division and printing side, which remained as HP, and also the enterprise services that now fall under the HPE banner. It has been debated whether or not Xerox is equipped to swallow a company the size of HP, And there's also a debate whether this is a smart acquisition or not. While certain sales, which obviously would be core to HP's business, have been down, they have been showing a little bit of progress as a whole. So it would be certainly interesting to see if this acquisition goes ahead. And sticking with HP for this next story, ZDNet has reported that HP will launch a 3D printing as a service model and expand its digital manufacturing network. HP's argument for the as-a-service model for this is that subscriptions require less upfront capital and can enable customers to expand prototyping and production faster. HP also has a 3DAS, 
3DAAS, <laughs> uh, plus subscription that integrates hardware, supplies, and services. I think it's actually a pretty good idea. While 3D printing isn't necessarily bleeding edge anymore, I think it hasn't really been adopted very widely in industry or enterprise. So for those organizations who think, hey, this really could apply to what we do, but they just haven't been able to put up front some money to invest in research and set up their own infrastructure, maybe a service like this could cater to those types of companies. So that's kind of cool. A company called Mirantis has acquired Docker Enterprise. The amount paid has not been disclosed, but it is believed Mirantis has acquired about 90% of Docker's business, including their partnership with Microsoft. Mirantis is a cloud consulting company with a current focus on Kubernetes. The new stack.io reported that Mirantis CEO Adrian Ionel stated, quote, We're buying Docker Enterprise for a couple of reasons. One is to accelerate our journey towards providing Kubernetes as a service to the world of multi-cloud and hybrid use cases. A lot of the Docker Enterprise customers actually use Kubernetes inside. We're also buying Docker Enterprise because we think containerization is the way to go. It's the way modern applications are being built and the existing applications are being re-modernized, end quote. A blog post announcing the acquisition implied that Docker Swarm will be phased out which makes sense as the company has more of a focus on Kubernetes, obviously. The company will be holding a webinar on the 21st of November about the acquisition and have stated it's full steam ahead and they do intend to develop the product further and have stated their support for open source. And if you listen to the podcast each week, this news probably isn't all that surprising because several episodes ago, I talked about reports on... Docker's worrying financial position and their struggles to find a profitable business model. And I guess in that light, this is probably good news because I'm sure it saves jobs for a lot of very talented people. So that's got to be good. Hopefully there won't be large layoffs due to the acquisition. There was also a dark foreboding this week with the leaking of information related to something called Project Nightingale, a project that will see the transfer of patient data for up to 50 million American patients from a healthcare company called Ascension, who will be transferring the data to Google. A whistleblower working on the project came forward and raised concerns with the secretive nature of this data transfer and came forward with concerns that safeguards and security are not in place for the transfer and went as far as to claim it could be in breach of HIPAA rules, which is a U.S.-specific healthcare data compliance rules. The whistleblower also stated, quote, Patients haven't been told how Ascension is using their data and have not consented to their data being transferred to the cloud or being used by Google. At the very least, patients should be told and be able to opt in or out, end quote. The Guardian reports that according to a spokesperson for Ascension, quote, all work related to Ascension's engagement with Google is HIPAA compliant and underpinned by a robust data security and protection effort and adherence to Ascension's strict requirements for data handling, end quote. Google also just acquired Fitbit, which obviously has data related to people's health. So potentially between the data gathered from sources like Ascension, 
Google could amass data including people's names, addresses, date of birth, medical conditions, lab records, hospitalization history, and also you could draw the conclusion with Fitbit, they could get more kind of real-time data on things like sleep patterns, heart rate, exercise frequency, and potentially dietary habits and more. So I would say that this is actually a pretty huge news story, and it certainly appears the case because it was also reported this week that there's going to be a federal investigation into this. So keep your eyes peeled and your ears open for more on that. Interestingly, WindowsCentral.com reported that Microsoft plans to honor California's upcoming California Consumer Privacy Act nationwide when the law comes into effect in January 2020. The law is said to be similar to EU's current GDPR, and under the new law, companies will be required to inform customers about how their data is collected and used. People will also have the right to opt out of having their personal information being sold. Microsoft claims, quote, We are strong supporters of California's new law and the expansion of privacy protections in the United States that it represents. Our approach to privacy starts with the belief that privacy is a fundamental human right and includes our commitment to provide robust protection for every individual, end quote. The Verge has reported that there is a vulnerability in Apple Mail that Apple has known about for months. An Apple IT specialist by the name of Bob Gendler discovered that Apple stores encrypted emails in a database on the operating system, which is really bad, but at least the good news is it's quite difficult to exploit. You need to be using macOS, Apple Mail, be sending encrypted emails from Apple Mail, not be using File Vault to encrypt your entire system already, and know exactly where in Apple's system files to look for this information. So if you're a hacker, you need access to those system files in order to exploit this. A patch should be coming in future, but for now it is suggested by Apple that you can navigate to System Preferences, Siri, Siri Suggestions and Privacy, Mail, and toggling off the Learn From This App feature. Apple also provided this solution to Gendler, but he says that this temporary solution will only stop new emails from being added to the database. If you want to make sure older emails that may be stored in the database can no longer be scanned, you may need to delete the snippets.db file. I guess one saving grace to all of this is, who the hell uses Apple Mail anyways? The app sucks. NetworkWorld.com reported that Cisco and Microsoft extended their relationship to make it easier and more efficient for SD-WAN customers to set up and run direct internet access to enterprise applications such as Office 365 and other Azure cloud services. Specifically, Cisco said it would integrate its SD-WAN package with Microsoft's Azure Virtual WAN and Office 365. These two behemoths working together who cover so much of the enterprise space is likely a good thing at least for larger customers so i guess it's good on the back of microsoft ignite 2019 which i covered in a lot of detail on last week's episode a lot of the sessions have been published and some of the great minds of the community have also shared some of their own insights 
including Tim Mangan, who talked specifically about how Microsoft will be handling Windows services in MSIX packages. It appears they intend to have services installed locally on the machine rather than run virtualized within the package's virtual environment. This is quite a divergence from how services were handled in AppV previously. As this is on Tim's personal blog, I won't divulge all the details, but some of the announcements including the timing for when MSIX packaging tool will support services and when the build of Windows 10 that will support it comes out raise some concerns for me as AppAttach will rely on MSIX for its success. And it sounds like for a lot of organizations, it is likely that the ability to deliver services with MSIX could still be more than a year away. And for those keeping score, AppAttach, based off information from Ignite, appears to be coming out around the time of like March 2020. So I would say Windows services and other current limitations for MSIX really need to be resolved before AppAttach can be a full kick-ass app delivery solution, in my opinion. I'll share the link to Tim Mangan's excellent blog with this episode, which is episode 98. You'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 98. On the topic of Ignite, Jim Moyle shared a QR code that you can scan to get all of the WVD Ignite sessions. And Jim also specifically singled out a particular session that's worth looking at for anyone who's new to WVD, and it's on Azure Image Builder. And before getting off this topic, Tom Hickling also shared a really handy single-line PowerShell command for downloading all of the WVD sessions. So we've got a very talented, resourceful community out there. It's pretty cool. Numescent, who make the excellent cloud paging product this week, announced they are now an official partner with Microsoft for WVD. And with some of my concerns that I mentioned just then about MSIX and AppAttach and AppAttach's reliance on MSIX, This partnership could actually be pretty key because it delivers a way to take your current application set and deploy it pretty dynamically to your users in a Windows virtual desktop scenario with a very high rate of compatibility too. Like you'll get about 99% of your applications working, which you can't really do with things like traditional application layering or virtualization. So that's pretty cool. Neowin.net reported this week that they have several sources that have confirmed that Microsoft are working on bringing 64-bit app emulation to Windows on ARM. It's potentially to be released the first half of 2021, and Windows insiders will be able to test it out next year. If you listen to the podcast each week, this may not be news to you. I reported several months ago about an article posted by Mary Jo on ZDNet covering this exact topic. So it's something that's been long rumored and I'm sure eventually is going to happen. And speaking of ARM, Microsoft Edge for ARM is now available in the Canary channel. It will come soon to the dev and beta channels as well. And also on the topic of ARM, a new version of the Windows desktop client, or for those who may still associate it, the RDP client really, has been updated with version 1.2.431 being released that brings with it 32-bit and ARM64 versions of the client, plus a lot of little tweaks and fixes too. 
A vulnerability has been identified that affects Citrix Application Delivery Controller, ADC, formerly known as Netscaler, ADC, and Citrix Gateway, formerly known as Netscaler Gateway platforms, which could result in privilege escalation via Layer 2 network access on all network interfaces. The vulnerability is being tracked with CVE-2019-0140. Now, an attacker must have Layer 2 access to leverage this vulnerability, therefore limiting exposure to peer-switched access. Link Layer Discovery Protocol, or LLDP, being disabled at the peer switch connecting the MPX SDX actually mitigates the issue. So, a way to address this is to disable LLDP at the peer switch connecting to MPX SDX, and long-term Citrix intends to remove this requirement in future builds, which are expected to also include a firmware update for the network interface cards. Citrix recommends that affected customers immediately apply the provided mitigation and upgrade all of their vulnerable appliances to a fixed version of the appliance firmware when it's released. So I just got back on Monday from E2EVC in beautiful Lisbon, Portugal. It was a really fun event, and for a limited time only, there is a super early bird special sale on the upcoming Madrid event in June. Tickets are only 299 euros right now. I already got my ticket, so I'll see you there if you go. During E2EVC in Lisbon, Mateus from BISF shared details on the upcoming 1912 release that will include support for WVD, Nutanix WeFrame, Parallels RAS, Hypervisor Detection or Bare Metal support, LAP support, FSLogix optimization, configuration of the page file being possible, defrag optimization, antivirus enhancements, and much more. Citrix Optimizer also had an update that brings with it added templates for Windows 10 build 1903, Windows updates is now read-only, improved templates with support for removal of mail and calendar, Cortana, cleanup of event logs, disabling hibernation, and that sort of thing, added unified status reporting, various improvements to template auto-selection, added ability to disable modes for some groups or entries, and more. And speaking of Citrix, before I get off this topic, my buddy Patrick Koble was at the 30th anniversary celebration for Citrix, I believe that was held last week in Florida. CUGC have uploaded a video that he took from the event, and I'll share a link with this episode, which again is episode 98. You'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. And now the weekly webinar. So if you've been paying attention, it's kind of an obvious one this week, but the webinar to check out will be the Mirantis webinar that will discuss their acquisition of Docker. It will be held on Thursday, November 21st at 9 a.m. Pacific. And because that felt a little too easy, I also wanted to mention a webinar that I featured previously on a different episode of this podcast. But as I was at E2EVC this past weekend, I was talking to Trent Tai of Control Up and got to see their amazing opening session, which was awesome. Um, so that made me revisit this great webinar on using ControlUp's automation for solving Citrix problems. So if you're a Citrix admin, you should really check this out, and I'll share it with this episode of the podcast. And also, I'll probably mention this again, but you should really subscribe to the PubForm channel on YouTube and turn on notifications to check, to check out all of the great E2EVC sessions from Lisbon 
for yourself when they get uploaded. And if you turn on notifications, you'll be notified when they're uploaded. And now this week's scripts, tricks, and tips. The awesome Sean Massey shared a blog post that details how he automates his image build process in his home lab. If you have a home lab and you are maybe not familiar with automation or MDT, this could be really interesting and could be a starting point for you. And also this week, Bass Fan Cam tweeted out a really great WVD cheat sheet that he created. If you checked out Bass's old app layering cheat sheet and really liked that, which I thought was really useful, you'll love this one too. It gives a quick glimpse of some of the WVD features that you really want to know about and should be forefront of your thoughts with WVD. That's it for another episode of the podcast. If you like the podcast, by all means, tell your work colleagues, your techie friends. And I'd really appreciate it if you could go to your podcast platform of choice and rate the podcast too because it increases visibility and gets more eyes and ears on it. As always, thank you all so much for listening.